Hello and welcome to Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. I'm Mark. And I'm Bethan. Thank you so much for joining us once again, everybody, and um, for listening to our little show. I just, Mark, I just love it that people listen to us week in, week out. I do. I find it really weird. And somebody recognised me in Sainsbury's. I think I told you, didn't I, Bethan? You did yeah. tell the listeners. She was, I'd, I'd, yeah, I think I'm really sorry. I think her name was Jess and she was at my local Sainsbury's. She works there and she was helping me at the self-service because obviously I completely fucked it up. And she came over and I was kind of sort of explaining what I'd done, which she probably didn't need to hear. And then she was just like, hang on, are you do you do a podcast? And I was like, yeah. And I said what it was. And she's like, oh my God, I listen and I love it. So um, if your name was Jess, which I think I've remembered correctly, and you're listening to us still, uh, hello. And uh, she was lovely and gave brilliant service. So thank you, Jess. Oh, I love that. Hi to the lady from Sainsbury's. Yeah. We'll take a moment now to just thank the most recent supporters. Do you want to do the honours, Bethan? Go on then, I've let you do it for a little bit, Go haven't on. I? So, a huge, huge thank you to Tyree Finnegan, Samuel Hawkins, Courtney Holland, Ian Horrocks, Demi, Kelly Smith, Leona Horn, Kyle Rankin and Sophia Agra-Alea. Thank you very much, everybody. Thanks to each and every one of you. And of course, huge thanks to our existing Patreon supporters. If you would like to join all of these people, over a thousand of our listeners have signed up to support us on Patreon since we started the show. We're so grateful. It means that we can still be here doing this, invest in the show. Uh, so if you would like to join them, all you need to do is head over to patreon.com slash seeingredpodcast. In light of some truly distressing recent news stories surrounding killer nurse Lucy Letby, we are once again going to cover a similarly appalling and deeply disturbing example of what happens when evil presents itself as a well-meaning guardian angel in a position of trust. Now, long-time listeners will of course know that we have been here before. In season three, Bethan covered the case of Dr Harold Shipman, who was convicted of murdering 15 of his patients. Probably, I think, we surmised and the general consensus is it's late hundreds possibly Bethan I can't remember yeah I believe it's something like 240 but that is just off the top of my head I'm sure it's it's quite a huge number that people believe he you know hasn't actually been convicted for yeah and they were essentially specimen charges and in season eight we covered the appalling crimes that were committed by killer nurse Victorino Chua and that was at Stepping Hill Hospital in 2011 Both of these cases, as well as several other cases that we've covered here, reiterate several ugly truths. We are all vulnerable. Some of the most despicably evil human beings on this earth walk freely amongst us, undetected, hiding their wicked intentions behind a warm smile and often a position of trust and authority. And also, I suppose if we think about Jimmy Savile as well, who we discussed in a Patreon episode, he would be on the wards saying he was there to cheer people up in their sort of time of pain and and discomfort but actually he was not there doing that at all but that's what he had the facade of as well yeah he he was really in a position of trust and power because he had the backing of people in government the prime minister the royal family people that were 
part of the executive team at various hospitals around the country. He had keys to hospitals and secure mental institutions like Broadmoor. So, yeah, I mean, he is the ultimate example. But there's many others. David Fuller, a name that we mention quite often. And even people like Wayne Cousins, who who we have uh, mentioned before. We did do uh, the case of the murder of Sarah Everard, which was a very difficult case to cover. And that's an individual that, that very much was in a position of power and trust and, and absolutely abused that. So that's yeah, what we're going to be looking at today. It's just horrible, isn't it, how many we can kind of reel off just from the episodes we've done on the show, as well as we said, you mentioned Lucy Letby, who we've discussed. Obviously, we haven't covered her case, but Beverly Allett as well. Yeah. These people in positions of power. I, I mean, I also, you, you mentioned Wayne Cousins, and I'm thinking, right, I can list off however many different people who were in some form of policing. It's just crazy. So, yeah, looking at this element with hospitals, it makes you never want to be sick and have to go into hospital, doesn't it? It does. And we've said it before and we'll say it again. I I am convinced that at any one time in the UK, there is probably a nurse stalking the wards of an NHS hospital carrying out nefarious acts, whether that's just, just, quote unquote, deliberate harm or murder. I honestly think history has told us that pretty much at any one time, there is a nurse out there doing that. And of course, absolutely, the the vast majority of nurses and healthcare professionals only have their patients' best interests at heart. They are not committing these heinous crimes that we are covering. We see the extremes of it on this podcast. So I want to make that clear. But what I would say... Uh, Yeah, definitely, because we've got a lot of listeners as well who are just absolutely wonderful people within either the NHS or other elements of healthcare. And I do sometimes feel a bit bad because I'm like, you guys are also amazing, but there's always some bad eggs. But it, And it doesn't really matter what profession, what industry we look at. We could look at any industry, whether you're in a position of power in that industry or not. And there's going to be probably similar numbers, I would guess, per 10,000 people. Maybe one of them is going to be carrying out some criminal acts. Who knows? Um, so it's not... It's just that we focus on on this because I think it's, as you said, Beth, and it just, it kind of really hits us where it hurts. It makes us think that we never want to be in that vulnerable situation or that when we are in that situation, that that could happen to us. And it does happen, unfortunately. And um, yeah, it's a really sad and disturbing thought. Horton General Hospital is an NHS facility located in Banbury in Oxfordshire in the UK. The hospital is one of the largest in the southeast and offers vital healthcare to the local community, including emergency services, surgery, maternity care and specialised treatments. With a long-standing commitment to patient care, Horton General Hospital plays a crucial role in delivering accessible and high-quality medical services to the region, collaborating with skilled medical professionals and employing advanced technologies to ensure the best possible outcomes for its patients. Horton General Hospital's history dates back to 1872, when it was founded as the Banbury Workhouse Infirmary to provide medical care for the poor and destitute. Over the years, the institution evolved and expanded its services. In the 20th century, it underwent several name changes and transformations, ultimately becoming the Horton General Hospital in 1948, with the establishment, of course, of the National Health Service. The hospital continued to grow in the following decades with new facilities and departments being added to accommodate the changing healthcare needs of the community. Horton General Hospital enjoyed a flawless reputation as a trustworthy medical facility for several decades. 
Over the years, they have employed countless hundreds of nursing staff who have been trained rigorously to uphold the hospital's high standards and conduct and to deliver the best possible care to the local and wider community. However, that all changed in January 2003 when they recruited a young former Territorial Army officer named Benjamin Gein, who I always want to call Benjamin Green. Obviously, I definitely thought for a second that you had mispronounced <laughs> the name because I. Isn't it funny how your mind just reads what it expects to see? And when I saw the the um, name of the document, I just assumed Green as well. It's quite a funny name, um, but obviously Ed Gein spelt differently. Who's he? American serial killer. Oh, so okay, yeah. You wouldn't because you don't like American old no. cases. I only do like you? no, absolutely not. And then actually, I don't know whether he's pronounced Gein. I think it's Gein. I've always said Gein, mm. but I've never heard someone say his name out loud. There you go. Anywho, that's beside the point. Yeah. Benjamin Gein was 23 years old when he was hired as a registered nurse at Horton General Hospital. He had an impressive resume and had stood out to recruiters by demonstrating a seemingly genuine passion and enthusiasm for nursing. All the standard background checks and safeguarding procedures were followed to the letter. Gein's criminal record check came back squeaky clean. He had glowing character references and his nursing qualifications were all verified to be genuine. Ben Gein was born in 1980 and grew up just down the road from where I live now in Banbury, in a suburb just a few miles from Horton General Hospital. After graduating from high school, Ben Gein joined the Territorial Army and gained the rank of lieutenant. Through the TA, he had trained as a medic, which led to him going on to train as a registered nurse. On the surface, there was absolutely no reason to be worried about this eager young man who seemed keen to get stuck in and make positive differences to the lives of his patients. As such, Gein was approved for active duty as a nurse and allocated a role on the minor injuries ward at the hospital. Nurses in a hospital's minor injuries unit or minor injuries ward are responsible for assessing and triaging patients with non-life-threatening injuries and illnesses and administering the relevant treatments such as wound care, medications and of course offering pain relief too. I mean most of of us and I'm sure most of our listeners have had cause to probably attend a minor injuries unit for slicing off the top of their finger or something like that. So it's that kind of stuff that you would rock up there for. It is extremely rare that any nurse on a minor injuries ward would ever have to deal with life or death medical emergencies. This type of situation would more often be dealt with in an accident and emergency ward. Within months of starting his career, Benjamin Gein developed a reputation amongst his nursing colleagues as someone who was always looking for the action. It was noticed very early on that whenever patients fell suddenly and inexplicably ill, Gein would always seem to be present for the ensuing drama. At first, this became a harmless running joke amongst the nursing team. They playfully suggested that Gein was jinxed and bespowed him with the nickname Ben Allett, which kind of makes... Oh God, I mean, that's worrying, isn't it? it? Yeah, I mean, it kind of makes me laugh because not in a, a way of laughing at the crimes that Beverly Allett committed or the crimes that Ben Allett went on to commit, but just this sort of, that element of banter in the workplace of yeah, this is funny and we'll call him Ben Allett because he's always there when something really bad happens. But nobody suspected for a long time that he could have he could have been doing what true. Beverly Allett was doing. Yeah, so yeah. I just find it weird. It's that dark humour as well. It's like, it is the dark humour of being able to get through things like that. Yeah. 
and having gallows humour is is absolutely something that people have always done and always will do. It's common in those And you can understand why you would. Yeah. 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 Oh, God. Because it is unusual. You, Like you said, it's a minor injuries place. You go there for for things that you just can't quite do yourself at home, but you don't need A&E for yeah. it. It's kind of, I, I always think it's a bit like an emergency doctor's. So Yes, exactly yeah. that. I think that that's the thing. But then sometimes you wouldn't go to the, you wouldn't necessarily go to the doctor if you needed something with stitches, no. but you wouldn't need to go to A and E, for example. Yeah, this is just really awful because the people going into this, their family members, you might you may well just drop someone off it. I've done it, Bethan. Sort of I did it a few months yes, ago, and you have left. That was for something else. This was actually for a finger injury. Oh, not, you stayed for that. Not one, half but, a toe being um, blasted yeah. off by a lawnmower, which then was an A and E uh, job. Um, honestly, also, you're still traumatized by yeah, that. Yeah, totally traumatized by that. Um, I also think though that these patients are triaged. That's the first thing that happens really at a minor injuries unit. So if it is likely to be quite serious, then they're going to be told you need to go to A and E now. So the people that are being treated at a minor injuries unit are definitely only there because they have a minor injury, and that has been diagnosed pretty quickly by a medical professional. Yeah, they've definitely. It's not that you're waiting to find out and something could be going on behind exactly, the scenes. Exactly, yeah. So, of course, the name Allett was a reference to the infamous British serial killer nurse Beverly Allett, who in 1991 embarked on a killing spree by injecting several of her patients with lethal substances. In 1993, Allett was found guilty of murdering four patients and attempting to murder a further 13. She was sentenced to a minimum of 30 years in prison. She remains in prison, or I think in a secure psychiatric hospital still. Um, She has, I think, I'm sure I've heard, you know, because it always goes quiet when someone's convicted and locked up. But I think she's essentially admitted to at least two of the murders. Um, So she has admitted some culpability, but she's a very sick individual in every way, I would say. So possibly she, she might never see the light of day. It's so fascinating as well because that was such an early case. I remember sitting on the sofa in your lounge at your old house on a Zoom or something with Kate from Ignorance as Bliss and talking about that episode. Possibly our first crossover episode. It definitely was, yeah. It was such a long time ago. Yeah. That's mad. And I know how popular the crossover episodes are, so we've got some more lined up. Um, So, Gein's colleagues would later describe to the media how his insatiable thirst for action soon stopped being funny and developed into a very real problem. So it was very much a joke at first, but in time, that nickname really came to haunt both Ben Gein and his colleagues. Despite the fact that his post was in the minor injuries unit at the hospital, he would often leave the ward without authorisation to go and work in the accident and emergency department, where, of course, all of the action was taking place. It's a real hallmark of this case because he would always drift to the A&E ward. And you can understand why when we come on to his motivations, but um, I just can't quite understand how he got away with that but I've never worked in a hospital environment so maybe it's a case of all hands on deck and they're not going to kind of turn him away if the minor injuries is quiet but I find it a bit weird that he would just rock up at A&E and start helping I don't know administer drugs to patients and help care for them and be there when they collapsed and stopped breathing for example which actually happened several times I just find it weird that he was able to do that for so long Maybe 
all the nurses are employed by the hospital and then you're just allocated where you're going to work. So it's totally okay for you to go and support on a different ward. Um, however, obviously, if he's not supposed to be and he's he's doing this off his own back, it's not what he's meant to do. However, he's not actually doing anything wrong by going, it could, it could, I guess. Could be. And he's, yeah. he's on the surface going off to be supportive and helpful. Yeah. You wouldn't think there was anything wrong with that, except for the fact that it's becoming... A coincidence. More of a coincidence, yeah. Yeah. And on several occasions, his supervisors would have to go to A&E to find Gein in order to order him back to the minor injuries unit because, yeah, quite often he was just nowhere to be found on the minor injuries unit. So they would know that he was in A&E and they would have to go and get him and bring him back. However, Gein would always find his way back to the A&E wards. He was a thrill seeker who enjoyed the adrenaline rush of working on life or death cases. It was an addiction that he was unable to control. And I think that is that is something that runs through a number of these cases. I think that was talked about with Lucy Letby. And we can't really talk much about it because she's appealed her conviction. And there's also going to be a retrial on one of the counts that where the jury couldn't reach a verdict. So, um, but I know that that was kind of mooted, that sort of um, blue light, what do they call it? Blue light junkie, uh, where a medical professional yeah. is kind of, yeah, obsessed with being in the thick of the action and being there in a life or death situation. But that was definitely the case with Gein. Gein's reputation as a thrill seeker soon became apparent to the A&E nursing staff, who also noticed how Gein would seem to magically appear whenever there was a dramatic life or death emergency unfolding. Most of Gein's colleagues chalked up his constant presence whenever things went wrong to the fact that he worked so many hours. He never took days off, for example, and he would take as much overtime as he possibly could. There were times when he would voluntarily work seven-day weeks for months at a time with no complaints. He told his colleagues and non-work friends that he was passionate about his job and aspired to be the best nurse in the hospital. He even went as far as renting a room in the hospital staff accommodation block on the Horton ground so that he didn't have to travel very far to get to work and so that he could sort of always be on hand to go in if he needed to at short notice. Again, hallmarks are there from other cases, aren't they? To that end, Gein was pretty much always on the ward whether things were going wrong or not. However, whenever things did go wrong and an emergency occurred, Gein would immediately light up, spring into action and literally sprint to be the first on the scene. He was known to run to these situations. His timing was impressive. He'd descend on the action with such speed that it was almost as if he'd been anticipating it beforehand. Not only that, but he would also always be the first to speak up, offering a theory as to what the problem was and what the correct course of action should be in order to fix things. And strangely enough, Gein was almost always spot on in his medical assessments. In 2003, Gein featured in an edition of Banbury's local newspaper. By dark coincidence, this same edition also featured an interview with the British actress Rachel Leskovac, who played a serial killer nurse in the medical drama Holby City, and who also played a character called Natasha in Coronation Street in 2008, uh, and she came back into that show in 2021, I think. But I remember watching her in, in 2008. She was brilliant. I think she's a brilliant actress. But in Holby City, her character had murdered patients by secretly administering insulin and was eventually exposed as a murderer. Nurses at Horton Hospital would later observe that there were notable similarities between this storyline and the crimes Gein was later found guilty of. So, of course, is this a coincidence 
or was Gein, did, was he watching Holby City around this time and was he seeing that character carry out these acts and murder patients and that's what inspired him or maybe he was already inspired to do that but some of the methods used were then used by him. Perhaps it is just a coincidence, but I think it's an interesting twist in this story and kind of a shame for Rachel Leskovac, the actress, because nothing to do with her at all. And she might not even be aware of it, but to think that she could have potentially, well, the portrayal of that character could have inspired some of his motivations. I don't know. I don't know exactly when when that was happening. Yeah, I and I also I always wonder, and some of our listeners who are in the medical profession will be able to tell me, or potentially you know like firefighters, because I love the program Chicago Fire, and I always think if you're in that industry or in your job like that, would you watch something that's a portrayal, a media portrayal of your job? Mm. Um, because I feel like if you are in, um, you know, if you're a nurse, would you watch it and then the whole time you'd be sat there going, well, you wouldn't say that or you wouldn't do that or that's been put wrong. And the same with firefighters. Would they not just be like, oh, I've done this all day. Don't want to watch it. So I'd just be intrigued to know. Yeah, yeah I think I'd be like that. I think I'd just, after a day at work, particularly if I was a nurse, having done a 12-hour shift, the th- I think the last thing I'd want to watch is a programme about nurses, whether it's fictional or not. Yeah, so... Yeah. Um, but who knows? Maybe some do and maybe some don't. But yeah, be interesting to know. My job's just boring. They wouldn't make a TV programme about no, finance, same, would they? Same, so. Bethan, my God. <laughs> yeah, it would not be interesting. Uh, very worthwhile jobs, may I add, but uh, no. Oh, of course. Not, uh, not exciting. Although I do like watching The Office. Yeah. The British yeah. Office, so... Hmm. Yeah, let's leave that discussion there. Um, So from the outside looking in, Ben Gein would have looked like a nursing superstar. However, behind the scenes, hospital bosses were keeping an eye on him. His behaviour was a problem, and the rate at which patients were suddenly becoming inexplicably ill was not going unnoticed. They couldn't prove it, but there was a contingent of senior hospital staff that couldn't shake the feeling that something was off. However, without proper causation, they could not have Gein removed from the ward. All they could do was wait patiently for him to make a mistake. And they didn't have long to wait. Before we get to that, though, let's just take a moment to hear from this week's show sponsor. That's the sound of another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform that will help you to start, run and grow your business. Shopify is the commerce platform revolutionising millions of businesses worldwide. Whether you're selling candles or cupcakes, Shopify simplifies selling online and in person so you can successfully grow your business and focus on your customers. Covering all of your sales channels from a shopfront ready point of sale system to an all-in-one e-commerce platform. Shopify even gets you selling across social media marketplaces like Facebook, Instagram and TikTok. And it's full of the industry-leading tools ready to ignite your growth. Shopify gives you complete control over your business and your brand without learning new skills in design or coding. And thanks to 24-7 help with an extensive business course library, Shopify is ready to support your success every step of the way. What's great about Shopify is that no matter how big you want to grow, they will be there for you every step of the way to empower you with the confidence and control to take your business to the next level. It's time to get serious about selling and get Shopify today. This is Possibility powered by Shopify. Sign up for a £1 per month trial period at shopify.co.uk slash seeingred. That's all in lowercase. 
Go to shopify.co.uk slash seeingred to take your business to the next level today. That's shopify.co.uk slash seeingred. In late December 2003, an elderly patient was rushed to A&E suffering from an acute case of emphysema, a chronic and progressive respiratory condition primarily associated with smoking and long-term exposure to irritants, characterised by the gradual destruction of the air sacs in the lungs. This lung damage leads to reduced lung function and severe difficulty in breathing. However, despite being a serious and often painful condition, emphysema in itself is easily treatable and not usually life-threatening. The elderly patient was admitted to the emergency ward of the Horton General Hospital after experiencing said breathing difficulties. Nurse Ben Gein, who had once again drifted away from his post in the minor injuries unit, was on hand to assist. It was determined early on by a doctor that the patient required emergency ventilation and requested that the standard procedures be followed, which included a chest x-ray, blood pressure monitoring and constant observation. After that, the doctor ordered Gein to lower the patient's oxygen intake on the ventilator once he started to show signs of improvement. This was all standard and correct procedure that had been applied countless times in previous similar cases. The doctor left the patient under the care of Ben Gein to go and attend to other patients. The doctor would later tell the police how, at the time, he didn't feel that the patient was in any kind of danger and felt confident that he would respond well to the treatment. However, just minutes later, and to everyone's surprise, the patient went into sudden respiratory arrest. Now, respiratory arrest refers to the sudden loss of one's ability to breathe, often caused by a failure of the respiratory system, and it's life-threatening. It requires immediate intervention to restore breathing and to prevent brain damage, or in some cases, death. Rather conveniently, Gein was on hand to assist in a flash and was joined moments later by several other nurses and doctors. The medics battled to save the patient's life and were ultimately successful. The doctors managed to stabilise the patient and after a few days of observation in intensive care, the patient was discharged. However, senior medics were baffled as to how and why the patient had experienced respiratory arrest in the first place. Upon his initial admission to the ward, his breathing difficulties had been only moderately severe and he was in otherwise good shape. The speed at which he'd gone from stable to nearly dead was almost unheard of in such cases. The event went completely against anyone's understanding of emphysema and it was just utterly bizarre to all of the medical professionals. The patient's care notes were reviewed and scrutinised but medics couldn't find any evidence of any wrongdoing or any explanation for what had occurred. This is just so scary because this is what we see with this kind of criminal case is good doctors and good nurses not being able to find out what the reason is because obviously you're not going to initially assume that someone has done something malicious and it's an it's a naturally occurring health thing is there's going to be some sort of condition or something happens that can that can happen it does happen but like we said when we talked about Lucy Letby for example these babies yes they're in a special unit for babies who have been born prematurely but it's very very unlikely that any of them would not survive they just need that extra support so for this to happen was so shocking and so out of the ordinary and it it's the same here you know like yes that was what was going on but it was unlikely that this would ever have resulted in acute respiratory arrest like that's absolutely crazy i think that's it because i think 
doctors are experts in their field and most medical conditions follow very strict patterns. So even when there's a flare, uh, it will still follow quite a strict pattern. So it's it's not a case of saying, oh, well, they've gone into respiratory arrest because they've come in with some slight breathing difficulties and they have emphysema. So, of course, they've gone into respiratory arrest. That's not the norm. So the, these doctors are kind of thinking, yeah, this is not normal. This is utterly bizarre. What has gone down here? But you're absolutely right. They are not going to be thinking that this is... Uh, harmful intervention they're going to be thinking perhaps something has gone wrong or maybe this is the very unique case where emphysema at this stage has presented in this way but they are absolutely going to be putting last that a nurse is out to attempt to kill patients on this ward so just three weeks after this happening another troubling and much more tragic incident took place An elderly patient named David Onley, a diabetic with ongoing heart issues, was admitted to Horton A&E after suffering a hyperglycemic attack. Hyperglycemia is a medical emergency characterised by abnormally low levels of glucose in the blood and high levels of insulin, often resulting in symptoms such as shakiness, dizziness, confusion and in some cases loss of consciousness and death. The patient was seen by a team of night nurses who successfully managed to get his insulin levels back to normal and get him stabilised. He was kept in overnight for observation and the doctors who examined him expected him to make a full recovery. Early the next morning, however, the patient's care was handed over to Ben Gein, who had once again managed to find his way back to A&E without authorisation. Within less than one hour, Mr Onley went into sudden respiratory arrest. Once again, Gein was there to help before anyone else. He began emergency life-saving treatment on the patient and was joined moments later by other nursing staff and doctors. As before, Ben Gein put himself in the middle of the action and played a key part in the deliberate process to save the patient's life. He somehow knew with absolute certainty what the problem was and furthermore, what needed to be done in order to fix it. His fellow nurses would later describe how Ben Gein was completely jacked up and had an elated look on his face as he performed CPR. And this is one of the most disturbing descriptions of all of this to me. Horrible. That he was literally jacked up like a drug addict who is about to get a fix and then takes a massive hit of cocaine or crack or something. And he's literally almost bouncing up and down with excitement and elation and satisfaction. That is kind of the way to describe him. Probably not in that quite literal sense of jumping up and down but clearly in an agitated excitable state that was noticeable. As it turned out Gein's prognosis of Mr Onley's condition was 100% accurate however the patient's condition was much more serious than any of them realised. Despite battling for more than an hour to save him Mr Onley tragically passed away. Once again medics were baffled as to why yet another patient had experienced sudden and inexplicable respiratory arrest. The case notes were of course reviewed by several highly experienced doctors but at face value alone not even one of them could explain what had happened or why. However this time one of the nurses had seen fit to take a blood sample from Mr Onley shortly before his care had been handed over to Gein. The sample was sent for lab analysis and the results were deeply unsettling. It turned out that an enormous amount of midazolam had been given to Mr Onley shortly before he collapsed. Midazolam is a highly potent and short-acting muscle relaxant that is commonly utilised in medical settings to induce sedation, alleviate anxiety or assist in the management of seizures and insomnia and it's quite often given 
just before I remember having an operation a few years ago, and that's the first thing you get in the operating theatre while you're still awake. You get a massive dose of midazolam before they then give you propofol and all the other anaesthetic stuff. And it's a wonderful drug, um, actually. It feels lovely and, yeah, you feel super relaxed. But it's also incredibly dangerous when it's given in an uncontrolled environment or manner. So midazolam acts on the central nervous system to produce calming effects, making it valuable in various clinical scenarios, such as before surgery or medical procedures, during certain diagnostic tests, and also in emergency situations to alleviate acute anxiety or to control seizures. Its quick onset and short duration of action make it a preferred drug for short-term interventions, with dosage carefully tailored to individual needs to mitigate potential side effects and ensure patient safety. However, despite its ubiquitous use in the medical world, an overdose of midazolam will almost certainly cause a person to enter into a respiratory arrest, which in turn, as I mentioned earlier, can cause brain damage and can potentially then lead to death. The presence of high levels of midazolam in Mr. Onley's system undoubtedly had caused his death. However, the real mystery was why he'd been given midazolam in the first place. The drug is rarely ever used in cases that involve hyperglycemia. Certainly in Mr. Onley's case, it was absolutely unnecessary, yet someone had, for some reason, administered him with a massive and ultimately fatal dose of it. Either one of the nurses was dangerously incompetent, or there was something much more sinister going on in those wards. As much as the senior medical staff hoped and prayed it was the former, the latter didn't seem all that far-fetched. Just four years prior, in January 2000, Dr Harold Shipman had been found guilty of murdering 15 of his patients. He was jailed for life and entered the record books as Britain's most prolific serial killer. He died by suicide in his cell after four years of incarceration. And as we said, yeah, I, I, I'm sure it was, Beth, and about 240, 250 fatalities at his hands, possibly way more than that. I think from what they've looked at, of, um, yeah, I'm sure from when I researched that, when we presented that case, although it was a few years ago, so please forgive my memory, but I'm sure investigators have looked at anybody who passed away um peacefully and it was like unexpected but obviously it wasn't at the at the time because they were elderly and all of these reasons um and linked with recent visits from him and that and recent visits to him or links with their wills or you know giving gifts in their wills and that sort of thing um and i'm sure it was 240 but it might have been 250 but it was definitely an absolutely disgustingly high number Either way, though, 15 is still horrendous. Yeah, of course isn't it is. It? Yeah. And I think Harold Shipman is someone that has absolutely gone down in the history books, in true crime history, but will stay there. And I think in 100 years' time, his name will be known and TV shows will go on to still be made about him and books will yeah, be written about him. It will what still bring that like hatred. People yeah. will still hear his name and feel that repulsion and hatred towards him. And of course, Shipman's crimes generated a huge amount of news coverage and it was fresh in everybody's minds around this time. And officials at Haunton were sickened at the thought that this appalling chapter in UK criminal history may be repeating itself right on their doorstep. 
And so they launched an immediate internal investigation into the recent run of strange incidents at the hospital. Oh, good. I so know. they properly started an investigation straight away. Which I do think was down to Shipman. I honestly do think it was yeah. because that was fresh in their minds and they were thinking this does happen and this could be we happening here. We need to take yeah. it seriously. However, as senior medics carried out their discreet but urgent inquiries, the carnage on the ward only continued. Just two days after the death of David Onley, a 53-year-old patient called David Long was admitted to Horton A&E with chest pains. After being treated by Benjamin Gein, Mr Long suddenly lost the ability to breathe and collapsed. Ben Gein raised the alarm and immediately began emergency treatment. Of course he did. Thankfully, other medics arrived to help him and they, together with Gein, successfully managed to save Mr Long's life. The next day, a 77-year-old patient named David Nelson had an almost identical experience when he too suffered a sudden and inexplicable respiratory arrest after being treated by nurse Ben Gein. The patient ultimately survived but came perilously close to death. Senior medics took blood samples from both Mr Long and Mr Nelson and again discovered potentially fatal amounts of midazolam in their systems. There was now no way to escape the terrible truth. Horton Hospital had a killer in its midst. Over the following weeks, a further 15 patients who'd been under Benjamin Gein's care, both on the minor injuries unit and on the A&E ward, experienced sudden and inexplicable respiratory arrests, bringing the total number of cases to 18. Two of them, 75-year-old David Onley and a 65-year-old man named Anthony Bateman, didn't survive the ordeal and sadly passed away. These numbers were absolutely unprecedented. Hospital staff might expect one, maybe two of these dramatic incidents in a given month, but 18 in two months. Something seemed seriously amiss now. By this point, senior medics had recorded the cause of deaths of Mr Onley and Mr Bateman as possible murder, and the police were alerted. Thames Valley Police conducted an investigation involving up to 40 officers and independent medical experts who advised the force. They verified the fact that several patients who had suffered respiratory arrests had been given the drug midazolam. They began cross-referencing the medical files for each case of respiratory arrest with the staff rosters, and it was here when they noticed the common denominator, Benjamin Gein. Gein was the only nurse who had been present for all 18 of the incidents in question. This revelation prompted investigators to dig deeper into the finer details of his background. Now, although Ben Gein had no criminal convictions to his name, investigators soon realised that there had been problems with his general conduct for quite some time. For example, after examining his time in the Territorial Army, they found documented evidence that he'd built up a reputation as a reckless thrill-seeker who wanted to be in the thick of the action at all times. This type of behaviour is generally not viewed positively in the military, as it can cause a person to act in an irresponsible and risky manner, thereby putting themselves and their fellow soldiers at risk. Subsequently, more than once, Gein's superior officers had had to pull him aside and tell him to calm down and take a step back. So again, I can imagine that he was jacked up in some of these situations, and quite evidently excited and that was manifesting in, you know, really obvious ways, potentially, you know, shaking or smiling, ways that he wasn't able to control that were obvious. And yeah, they had to step in and just say, right, you need to like move the fuck back because something's happened here and we need to save this soldier's life or whatever. I mean, it was a territorial army, so it probably wasn't 
too serious but either way he would get very excited so yeah very interesting it's just so creepy isn't it i remember when i did my first aid training and i've done first aid training on three separate occasions because you you don't obviously like your your training you, you could forget things and every single time you come away thinking i hope to god that i never have to perform cpr for example i'm glad i know this but i hope i never have to use these skills whereas this guy is like way let's get involved in things that pe- normal people would not want to see they would want to mitigate risks so that somebody didn't get injured not someone gets hurt and they're running around all it bouncing around like an excited puppy and then in the hospital getting all excited about it just creepy i i really dislike the, the way these descriptions are of like him it just me, it gives me like chills and i don't know what the medical like the medical kind of um term is so we have things like munchausen's by proxy munchausen syndrome i think that's called something else now i'm not an expert in all of this but it's kind of similar isn't it what he's doing here so he's wanting to put himself at the heart of the action be the one to kind of save the day potentially and then i guess Mm -hmm. be seen to be the hero so that hero complex which i will come on to talk a little bit about towards the end but also maybe an element of oh God, you know, poor me, I've been there when this has happened. I've been at the thick of it and I saw that happen and I'm traumatised by that and I need help and I need attention. So maybe it's maybe it's that hero complex and an element of, woe is me, I need some attention. Who knows? If you're a psychologist, get in touch and tell us. So this penchant for reckless thrill-seeking behaviour had followed Bengin to Horton. Ben's superiors handed over documentation in which his fellow colleagues had expressed concerns about his professional conduct, which highlighted the fact that he'd been repeatedly reprimanded for abandoning his post and constantly seeking out the action on the ward. He'd also been reprimanded during his training for wearing nurses' epaulettes before he was qualified to do so. And again, that to me hammers home that it's a bit Walter Mitty-esque of I'm more important than I actually am. So I'm not yeah. a qualified nurse at this point, but I'm going to wear the epaulets to have everybody believe that I am a qualified nurse. Yeah, it's that, like you said, hero complex, like that status thing. It's, ego, yeah. isn't it? It's really Real down ego. to the ego. Even though the detectives knew they were onto something, they also knew that all of this evidence was just circumstantial at best. They'd need something a lot stronger to justify an arrest. Their lucky break came when they made the decision to speak to the 16 survivors who'd been attacked by the mystery killer nurse before going on to make some form of recovery. Whilst most of them had not noticed anything strange about Ben Gein's or anyone else's behaviour, one survivor gave the police a deeply troubling account of her experience with him. An elderly patient named Herlene Probert was admitted to hospital after falling at home and suffering a dislocated shoulder. She found herself on the minor injuries ward at Horton General Hospital in a great deal of pain, but certainly wasn't life-threatening. A doctor who examined her prescribed morphine to be administered intravenously for the pain. Now, morphine is a potent and highly effective drug that is used for rapid pain relief. However, just like midazolam, too much of it can be fatal and can cause respiratory arrest. So it definitely acts in that similar way that it will just act on the central nervous system and cause the breathing to slow and eventually shut down if too much is administered. And of course, when you're then in respiratory arrest, brain damage, potentially death can follow. Despite the pain, Ms. Probert felt like she was in safe hands. She later recalled to the police the moment her nurse entered the room. 
He introduced himself as Ben and said that he needed to flush out her drip, referring to the medical process of clearing and maintaining the openness of an intravenous line. Moments later, Ms. Probert lost the ability to breathe and quickly fell unconscious after going into sudden respiratory arrest. Gein raised the alarm, as per usual, and his colleagues raced to assist him. Miss Probert came perilously close to death, but ultimately she survived and regained consciousness. No midazolam was found in her system, but it was discovered that she had been given far too much morphine, which was undeniably the cause of her sudden respiratory arrest. This was clearly no accident. People with dislocated shoulders and no underlying health issues don't suddenly, randomly go into respiratory arrest. Miss Probert had been targeted. She would go on to provide a full statement to police in which she identified Ben Gein as the individual who had sabotaged her IV line just moments before she'd almost died. Unbeknownst to Gein, Miss Probert had served as a nurse on the very ward at Horton General Hospital that he was working on for more than 30 years right up until her retirement in the late 90s. And while she felt that she was in the best possible care, she described to the police how she'd felt increasingly bewildered by Gein's conduct almost from the very beginning, right up until the moment that he had tried to murder her. Oh, interesting. So she would know how you should or shouldn't behave and she... She'd have been in that position numerous times, going in and talking to somebody. And for her to have actually had that gut feeling that something was not quite right, that's incredible. Yeah, I mean, 30 years as a nurse at that very hospital. She would have been able to do things in her sleep. Yeah, and I think she'd have picked up on sort of non-verbal cues. She'd have picked up on lots of displays and manifestations of Gein's behaviour. And it would have all consciously, subconsciously gone into her head and she did yeah she just knew something wasn't quite right about this guy but she couldn't really put a finger on it at the time the following day as ben Gein arrived on the ward for his night shift he was apprehended by two senior medics and asked to step inside a side room for a meeting when Gein entered the room he discovered that two police officers were there waiting for him Gein was wearing his nursing scrubs and a fleecy jacket When the arresting officers searched him, they found an empty syringe in his jacket pocket and the inside of that pocket was damp and cool. It seemed as though Gein had panicked when he was apprehended and had emptied the syringe's contents into his pocket. Gein claimed that he had inadvertently taken the syringe home after his last shift and was returning it. Police would go on to search Gein and his then-girlfriend's apartment and at both locations they found prescription-only medications that were eventually traced back to the hospital. The substance that he'd squirted out into his pocket was also tested and turned out to be midazolam, which, as we know, had been used in multiple instances where patients who were seemingly okay before they entered that ward, albeit they had a minor injury, went into respiratory arrest. So, you know, very telling that that's what he had in his pocket, in a syringe, and he walks into this side room, sees two probably uniformed officers there, it's very obvious what's going on now, and puts his hand in his pocket of his fleecy jacket and squirts out the contents of of that syringe and it probably jizzes all into that pocket and kind of this this big damp patch on the outside so pretty fucking obvious what he's done and mark you're so disgusting isn't that a medical term that it jizzed everywhere it is not a medical term do you not even try and pretend (laughs) you think that that's a medical term i thought it was i don't work in a medical setting i would say 
mm, there's your excuses. <laughs> but I would say if it had been like a syringe of saline or something where you could accidentally just pick it up and put it in your pocket because it's not... I mean, you still shouldn't really be carrying around syringe, but you could kind of understand yeah. it. But it's clearly a lie. Yeah, what the fuck have you got accident. that in your pocket for? You've just turned and, up for work. And like you said, he's then got he's then dumped the contents of it. I'm not going to repeat what you said, but he's got rid of the contents. He's he's literally seen these police officers and got gone. I'm going to yeah. have to dump this because I've been otherwise I'm going to get caught with this on me. It's clearly not what he said. Not that we would ever believe it anyway, but he's just. Like we say so often, so many of these people are so stupid. They are They're just stupid. blinded by yeah. what they want and what they need for their addiction of um, killing or the drama or whatever it is that they are seeking the thrill from. And they don't have any sort of logical thought. He's just literally just acting on impulse. But I do, I do think it was panic at this point. I think it was just, yep. what's a lesser of two evils? A full syringe that they could really pin, pin it all on me then? Or I empty the syringe and we say it was empty all along and maybe they don't even notice. I don't know. Yeah, I think it was just pure panic at this point. Um, so Gein owned up to stealing these medications, but he said they were all for personal use. So I think the medications that were found at his and his girlfriend's respective apartments, but also the syringe of my Dazalam. Or actually, no, I think he said he'd t- taken that home by accident and was bringing it back. And had just probably, you know, his thumb slipped on the thing and just it all in the jacket. So um, the police cautioned him for theft, but that was the least of his worries. He was taken into police custody for questioning and agreed to answer any and all questions put to him at this point. He admitted to seeing each of the 18 patients named in the serious incident investigation, but of course denied any wrongdoing. Nevertheless, in February of 2004, Bengine was arrested and charged with murder attempted murder, theft and grievous bodily harm. He was denied bail and remanded in custody pending an investigation and subsequent trial. So initially this kind of initial arrest was like, you know, we're really suspicious that he has been deliberately harming patients at this hospital, but we just don't have enough evidence. So we'll get the police in, we'll get them to question him. He has that syringe in his pocket. It's a bit of a smoking gun, but it's kind of still circumstantial at this point. So I guess he's suspended from work at this point. He's arrested for what they can arrest him for, which is stealing medication and bailed. And I suppose during the following 12-ish months, the CPS are building their case, aren't they? So that they can really go after him for what they suspect by this point very much that he is murdering patients on the ward. So that's just to get the timeline sort of straight for anybody that's questioning it. Detectives built a case against Gein, alleging that between December 2003 and February 2004, at least 18 patients who'd been admitted to Horton A&E under his care had suddenly and unexpectedly stopped breathing and had had to have emergency life-saving treatment. Of those 18, as we've said, two very tragically died. Ben Gein's murder trial commenced in March 2006. He stood accused of murdering David Onley and Anthony Bateman, as well as causing grievous bodily harm to 16 other patients under his care. The prosecution alleged that Benjamin Gein got off on the thrill of the life and death cases and craved to be at the centre of it all, so much that he was willing to deliberately sabotage his own patients to chase that high. A criminal psychologist who analysed Benjamin Gein also suggested that he exhibited what is commonly referred to as hero syndrome. I don't know if I don't think that's like a specific medical term, but it is used a lot. So it's a psychological phenomenon is how it's kind of described. 
in which an individual seeks out or creates opportunities to rescue or help others, often to an excessive degree. This behaviour is typically driven by a deep need for validation, recognition or a sense of self-worth. People with hero syndrome may put themselves or others in danger by attempting to intervene in situations where their assistance isn't needed or is even counterproductive. And while the term hero syndrome isn't an official clinical diagnosis, it is used informally, I think, to describe this pattern of behaviour. And it is really important to try and differentiate between genuine altruism and hero syndrome, because the latter can lead to unintended negative consequences where people are creating these situations to put themselves at the centre and to be the hero. And I know I've droned on about that, but I just wanted to share something which I think I shared years ago on the show, where I exhibited this psychological phenomenon of hero syndrome when I was five years old, Bethan, and our listeners, and I hid someone's coat at school. I hid their <laughs> coat. Do you remember, I remember this? Telling you about this. Yeah. <laughs> so I hid their coat. I was five. And we then, the teacher, you know, they, they'd lost their coat. It was lunchtime, I guess. They couldn't find their coat. I'd hidden it somewhere on purpose. And the teacher had all of us looking for the coat. And then I found it, obviously, presented the coat to this kid. And the teacher was there to say how brilliant I was in finding the coat. And I was the hero. And it felt fucking great. Fortunately, I never carried on with that. So it was my one and only instance of hero syndrome. <laughs> um, but yeah, there you go. I, I have been guilty of it myself. But yeah, it felt good at the time at the age of five. I think the thing is, is for anybody who's normal, it's, it is, it makes you feel good. It makes you feel validated when you do something that helps someone else. And that is totally okay. That's part of human nature. It's the crafting a scenario I mean your one it's not that bad you were five luckily it wasn't that serious Mm. but it's the it's the crafting something to then be useful and helpful is where it starts to become worrying yeah maybe doing it once isn't that bad you got a bit of validation it's fine but it's then when you start chasing that high and needing that validation over and over and over I guess that validation wasn't as as addictive for me as it was for someone like Ben Gein um, but I, I do think that, there, you know, in probably every workplace, there are people that exhibit the behaviours of this hero syndrome, where they are the ones that maybe they deliberately sabotage a piece of work and then, you know, redo it all. And, and they are presented as the hero in that situation. And they get off on yeah. that, they get recognition, they get promotions and stuff. Yeah, I'd just say, you know, look out for it. If your coat goes missing, Bethan, you know where to look. It'll be me that's well, hidden in, it. In your car. <laughs> It'd be in my car somewhere. And I'll be like, I found it. Look, aren't I brilliant? Ooh, I found it. I haven't worked with you for five years, but it just must have gone there when you were out <laughs> in the training area. But I think it would be interesting potentially to know more about Gein's background and his childhood, because maybe as a child, he was that student that would always be the one to find something that had gone missing for the teacher. Mm. And nobody would put two and two together because it's not that weird. It's just a helpful child who's potentially better at looking than everyone else. And maybe it escalated over the years to a point where he would then start to deliberately harm people or or cause 
situations, create situations where people were harmed. Who knows? Yeah, yeah. I, I wouldn't be surprised if it exhibited itself. So we know in the Territorial Army and his role there, but also obviously on the yeah, wards. Yeah, absolutely did that. But yeah, I bet it did before that too mm-hmm. in, in situations, in social situations even. So yeah, it would yeah. be interesting to know. We know very little about his background. Um, and I do want to talk a little bit, we're very near the end now, but I want to talk a little bit in a moment about um, his protestations of his innocence, uh, because he very much still protests his innocence in all of this. During the nine-week trial, the jury heard from Gein's colleagues who described how he would come alive and often looked elated as his patients went into respiratory arrest. It was alleged that Gein even boasted about the regular action during his shifts and told one doctor, there's always a resuscitation when I'm on duty, almost like he was boasting about it. One nurse came to court to tell how Gein said, oh no, here we go again, as murder victim Mr Bateman turned blue and began to fight for breath. The prosecution alleged that Gein mostly used anaesthetic drugs that were commonly used in the hospital and readily available in emergencies, but deadly in the wrong hands. To strengthen their argument, the prosecution exhibited damning evidence that alluded to Ben being the individual responsible for at least two fatalities and several attempted murders at Horton General between the end of 2003 and spring 2004. And this included the staff rosters that proved that Gein had been on shift for every single one of those medical emergencies and the fact that he was arrested in possession of a syringe that contained midazolam. So, you know, there was some damning evidence there. However, the defence barrister for Bengine argued that all of the evidence presented by the prosecution was weak and coincidental at best. Gein was a nurse at a large hospital, a place where, from time to time, people died. An unfortunate yet inevitable and recurring event and nothing to do with a so-called killer nurse. The defence accused the hospital of scapegoating Gein to cover up their poor care standards, which, as they suggested, were the real cause for the unusually high mortality rate at Horton. Of Such course, echoes that was going to be here. the... Yeah, I mean, these future, pros- these future defence teams in cases that present in the future, which will, they need to get a better defence, I think. So the defence also argued that this syringe was for personal use and nothing more. Um, I mean, that's bad. Who's, you know, yeah, I know Shipman did it too. He uh, regularly used pethidine and injected himself with that. But, you know, I, I don't know. I just, I find that difficult to believe that he was injecting himself with midazolam and was turning up to work with a syringe full of it so he could inject himself while he was on shift. That's a weak kind of defence, isn't it? It's a really weird one as well, because from what you've described, it's a very, very dangerous, very risky thing to do for not not really a high or anything. Mm. I could understand maybe if it was morphine or yeah, something like yeah, that. Definitely. But from what you've described, I don't know. I didn't know the drug before this episode, but yeah, I guess because it's a relaxational sort of thing. But I'm sure you could, if you're able to steal this, I'm sure you could steal something better or with more of a thrill from the drug taking if you know what I mean so I and I don't really it doesn't fit with the rest of his personality so it just doesn't make sense does it it doesn't at all he could have he would have had so many other options available to him like diazepam for example he could have stolen a strip of diazepam and taken one of those as a tablet and had a calming and relaxed effect he doesn't need to inject himself with what was probably a near lethal uh, dose of midazolam so yeah it just doesn't really ring true 
On the 18th of October in 2006, after three days of deliberation, the jury found Benjamin Gein guilty of the two murder charges and of intentionally inflicting grievous bodily harm on 15 patients. On the 9th of May in 2006, Benjamin Gein, who was only 25 years old at this point, was handed 17 life sentences for the murders of David Onley and Anthony Bateman, and as well as the grievous bodily harm of 15 other patients. Whilst the judge accepted that Gein likely didn't intend to kill his victims, he ruled that Gein should spend at least 30 years in prison before being considered for parole. In passing sentence, Mr Justice Crane told Gein, This was a terrible betrayal. You betrayed your nursing and medical colleagues and the profession of which you had become a member. Most of all, you betrayed the trust of the patients. They were in your care and you intentionally caused them huge damage. Your purpose was to cause a collapse of the patient in order that you could take part in their revival. It seems that you relished the excitement and the feeling of taking control, but you must have known quite well you were playing with their lives. A chilling fact is that when you were stopped at the hospital, you had in your pocket a well-used syringe loaded with an anaesthetic drug, and I have no doubt that you intended to continue what you were doing. So I wanted to include all of that summary because it just beautifully summarises what was at play here. And also I just wanted to highlight the fact that this syringe that Gein had on him when he was initially arrested and cautioned for stealing drugs from the hospital, this was a syringe that had been probably used on multiple patients. So, you know, not only was he attempting to cause these situations by injecting patients with, you know, obscene doses of midazolam, he wasn't even changing the needle. So this was like a well-used syringe with a needle that had probably been stabbed into numerous people's IV lines or numerous people's body parts. And I just thought that was, you know, another bad thing really just adds to it doesn't it yeah. of how i don't know i just think because a, it's another dangerous element it, it is, to this yeah i mean if you're doing that on a minor injuries unit or an a and e ward that that is really there is that potential that people are going to contract illnesses diseases viruses and yeah it was just i just thought he's a medical professional and i know what he's doing is awful but in his training it would be so ingrained in him that You know, yes, he's got this weird obsession with causing drama and deliberately harming patients. But at the same time, there's this juxtaposition with me that I still thought maybe he would have taken care in how he did it. But obviously he wasn't. He was sloppy and using the same syringe. That's probably just the way my fucked up brain works. No, but it's weird, isn't it? The the elements to some of these cases that that, that stick to you you mind a little bit more. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. In a statement made on behalf of Gein by his lawyer outside the courtroom, he told the media, While I express every sympathy for the victims and their families, I continue to maintain my innocence. I am innocent of all counts. I wish to lodge an appeal. Which he did. Benjamin Gein has maintained his innocence ever since, but his multiple appeals have all failed. Three applications for appeal to the Criminal Case Review Commission, the independent body which investigates alleged miscarriages of justice, have been rejected most recently in 2020. Um, Even this year, 2023, just a couple of months ago, a statistician statistician came forward. Statistician. Statistician (laughs) came forward and and has said, you know, he's looked at this case and and he's thrown doubt on Benjamin Gein's prosecution and compared it to a similar case in America where a nurse was released from prison after 17 years uh, following conviction for something very similar. So, 
you know, there are lots of people out there that really do believe that Benjamin Gein is innocent. Um, he very much protests his innocence. He has been in prison now for 18 years. We mentioned him a couple of weeks ago, Beth, and I think on an episode of Crime Wave, possibly when we talked about Lucy Letby's sentencing. Um, so he's been in prison for 18 years. He was told he would have to serve a minimum of 30 years. In 12 years' time, in 11 and a half years' time, he could be a free man if he admits what he's done. So he has served the majority of his sentence. I can't remember what prison he's in, and I tried to find out. I thought it was Full Sutton, but it's another one. And I can't remember what it's called now, but it's a horrible prison. It's one of the worst prisons in the UK that houses lots of convicted terrorists, for example, some really high-profile, dangerous people. And that's his day-to-day life in that prison. And he will stay there forever, really, I think, unless he admits that he did this and he's steadfastly not admitting it. And he could be out in 11 years. He's survived 18 years in the prison system. He's done two-thirds. What's another 10 years or so? So part of me does kind of think maybe he is innocent. Maybe this is a gross miscarriage of justice. I just don't know. I think it's the fact that he continues to really protest his innocence when actually his release date's kind of on the horizon and he knows he won't get to that unless he admits his culpability. What are your thoughts, Betham? He may well just be thinking, I will get out and still have a decent chunk of my life and... I just have to sit quiet and keep my head down. He won't get out unless he admits what he did. I know, but I just feel like he, I don't know, I feel like he might just be that sort of like blinded that he just thinks, I just got to keep my head down, be good, and then one day the appeal will work. I just feel like with that sort of like creepy gob complex that he's probably got, he thinks that he's, I don't know, maybe it has hit him by now because it's been so long, but... Maybe he's got another throw of the dice. Maybe he's not exhausted all avenues for appeal. Maybe he's hopeful that new evidence will come to light and, and he can appeal and get the conviction overturned and get out before his sentence is up. I just really, I do struggle a little bit with this whole, if you don't admit your guilt... You have no chance of parole because mm. in this case, I feel like he's he's definitely guilty, but there's plenty of other cases where there is enough um, doubt. And I just think mm. if you're sentenced to X amount before parole and then you've served that, even though you're still... I don't know, maybe I would feel differently if it was my mm. loved one who had been killed and that person was still saying they were innocent. But there's so many cases where I do feel that there is reasonable doubt and that that person could well be innocent, and that's why they're protesting their innocence. With this, it clearly can't be anybody else. Surely, who else would it have been? He was the only one who was there all the time. Yeah, I mean, Um, I I think it's one of those for me that I'm 99% convinced of his guilt, but there has to be a a very small 1%, you do the math, uh, of me that just kind of thinks... You know I hate it. I know you hate it, Uh, that just thinks maybe, maybe this is a gross miscarriage of justice, but I I, I think he is guilty. I just think of people where, um, for example, I think that it's a very good idea to have a law in place where if you don't tell where your victim's body is, you cannot be released. I think that on the surface that sounds great, but if you were not the killer you can never reveal where that body is. No. And you're protesting your innocence and saying, well, I didn't do this and I cannot tell you where they're laid to rest. Well, then it completely turns that on its head. And I think that's where I really struggle is like, he he's saying he's innocent. He's never going to get out. 
And I kind of, with this case, I feel quite comfortable. I'm like, well, whatever. He can sit there and think mm. to himself, I'll keep my head down. But whatever. Just other cases, I think, maybe upset me more. With this, I kind of feel like I just, he's just a horrible, unlikable, nasty, evil human be- being that has done something mm. so horrible for his own creepy satisfaction. I don't care that he may be hoping to get out. Um, we talk a lot about our justice system and mm. we talk, we talked a lot about it on Crime Wave in particular. And I think it would be naive of us to say that it's always right and it's robust and it works. Um, it's something we just never know. You're never going to know the stats around it. But there are miscarriages of justice, ones we know about, ones that we don't know about, ones which will come to light potentially in years to come on high profile cases. I'm not, I'm genuinely not thinking of any specific cases. I just know that that'll happen. So yeah, it's, you know, lots, I used to be of the opinion that, well, a jury has convicted this individual that they found them guilty. So, you know, it's 100% that's the case. You can't argue with that. That's our justice system. But actually, I've got a much broader perspective on it now. And I kind oh, of know 100%, that yeah. it does go wrong. And yeah, I'm not saying that is the case here. I'm just saying there's a tiny, tiny amount of me that thinks maybe he's innocent. Um, but he probably isn't. And really, I don't want to detract from the victims in all of this and their families. You know, two people died, whether he meant to kill them or not, they died. And 15 people definitely because he was convicted of of that possibly more um suffered grievous bodily harm at his hands and are living with that impact so you know i don't want to detract from that but yeah my honest thoughts are that there is a tiny tiny chance that maybe something will come to light that he is innocent but i doubt it thank you for listening and um we're gonna go and record our latest episode of crime wave now that's our patreon exclusive fortnightly podcast in which we discuss topical true crime stories making the news uh if you want to listen to that and access our back catalog of crime wave i think there's 30 something episodes there now as well as all of our other bonus content so full bonus episodes i think there's about 40 of those then all you need to do is head over to patreon.com slash there's no minimum commitment with patreon so you can sign up for a month and binge loads of it and then cancel your subscription but we are always super grateful for any support we get through patreon it does mean a lot to us but so does any support so thank you to everybody and thank you for listening we'll see you next week for another case see you then bye